You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. The, the, the passage that um, Brett just read for us ends with these words where Paul says this, when each part of the body is working properly, the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. So as, as we function together as the body of Christ, as we serve one another, as we love one another, as we all do our part in the church, uh, everyone is doing his and her thing, using her gifts, the body grows so that it builds itself up in, in love. And so what Paul has been speaking about in this passage leads to that culminating, culminating phrase. He, he leads to that conclusion. And so everything that goes before, everything that Brett read for us is essentially a blueprint or, or kind of like a methodology, a design that God has established for the church in order that we might be built up and be the church that God has called us to be. Now, this picture is used in, scriptures, uh, in the scripture to, to describe our spiritual growth personally. Like Peter talks about how we need individually to desire the pure milk of the word so that by it we may grow up into our salvation. And in some respects, that same kind of metaphor, that same analogy is being used here by the Apostle Paul. He said there's certain things that are absolutely critical for us if we as a church are to grow up to be that all that God has called us to be. So if you're a lover of the church, particularly if you love Harvest Niagara, this sermon, this message is going to be of interest to you. I hope it's important to you because it's going to speak to this methodology, this this God-given design that he has built into the church that he uses to grow us up together to be the church that he has called us to be. The reality is that you and I will either build up and edify and strengthen and bless the church, or we will tear it down. We will hurt it. We will limit its capacity and its effectiveness. Individually, we are going to bless this congregation, or we are going to hurt this congregation. And so it's a terrible thing to have a negative, detrimental impact on a church. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if anyone destroys the church, God will destroy him. It is so easy to inadvertently, deeply hurt the church. And it's so easy to inadvertently not bless the church by simply being a spectator, by sitting back and not using the gifts that God has given to us. So this morning I want to challenge us to edify, to bless, to build up, to strengthen, and to do your part in building this church into all that God has for us to be in the future. So as I said, Paul gives us a blueprint. He gives us a design. He gives us a a pattern that we need to look at and then follow if we're going to impact this church the way God has called us to. And so what is it that God is calling us to do? What is it God is calling you to do to strengthen Harvest Niagara? And the first thing is this we got to value the gift of God. Now let me explain. In this passage of Scripture, Paul does what he often does. He's already done it once in the book of Ephesians, and he does it again here. 
he includes a little parenthesis in his flow of thought that sometimes make the flow of thought a little difficult to understand. So I'm going to read it without the parenthesis. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 and then jump down to 11, skipping the parenthesis. This is what Paul says. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, now we quote Psalm 68. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, a, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now we'll skip the parenthesis. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So what the apostle is saying here is that God has gifted the church with apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He's he's quoting a passage from, as I said, uh, Psalm 68, but he changes it slightly. In In Psalm 68, it says this, you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from men. David is talking about something that would be very common in the ancient world. When a king went out to do battle and he won the battle, he would bring the captives that he had defeated, the van- his vanquished foe, into his capital city in chains. And he would parade them through the city. It was called a triumph or a triumphal procession. And what David is saying about God in Psalm 68 is that this is what God has done. God is the conquering king, and he receives gifts from men. But if you look at what Paul does with the verse, in this passage of Scripture, he changes it slightly to instead of God receiving gifts, God is now giving gifts. And this is where it's important that we understand the parenthesis that Paul talks about. The parenthesis is just basically an explanation of who the king is. And in sort of cryptic language, he speaks about the life of Jesus. He speaks about the incarnation, the life, death, burial, ascension of Jesus. Read it with me. In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So he's speaking about Jesus here. And so the victor, Christ, is giving gifts. And so the question is this in verse 7. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The question that we have to ask ourselves is this, and it's important. Question is this, what does it mean? What is the grace speaking about there? What is the definition of that word grace? Let me give you my point of view. This is how I understand the passage. I don't think Paul is just speaking about the fact that God gives all of those that he saves a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. I think there's something else happening in this passage. I think that he is also speaking about the office gifts that God gives to the church. So when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to his church. He gave gifts to men. And those gifts are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. There are four office gifts in the church. Two of them are still in existence. There were four In the first century of the church, when Paul was writing, there were apostles. Paul was one of them. 
But when all of the apostles died, that office died. There are still people, to be sure, who have the gift of going overseas and living in a foreign culture. They, they sort of function the, uh, the way the apostles did, but they are not apostles. If somebody comes to you and says to you, I'm an apostle, tell them you can't be. They're all dead. The same thing's true of the prophets. Remember Acts 11? There was a prophet that came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. His name was Abagus. And he talked about the fact that this major famine was going to cover the whole world, and it did during the reign of Claudius. Back in the early church, as the church was being established, there were prophets and there were apostles. But after that first generation of Christians, those offices died out. And the church is now built upon that foundation that they laid. Go back to chapters 2 and 3 with me because you can see this reality, what Paul is saying. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. He's talking about the church and he says, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. Then down in chapter 3, verse 5, he talks about, The mystery of Christ. Remember, we talked about the mystery of Christ that was revealed. He says, Paul is saying, this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see, in the first century, the the first generation of the church, God raised up two very specific offices to ensure that the church would be established well. And those offices that existed and then stopped existing with the death of those officers was, was the office of apostle and prophet. They died out. Those ministries ended. Although I am sitting here ministering to you this morning on the basis of their ministry. So although they are dead, they still speak through the inspired word of God that God used, used, used them to produce for us. So there's two offices left. There's the office of evangelist and there's the office of pastor-teacher. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and it continues to be built through the ministry of the evangelist and the pastor-teacher. And they are God's gift to the church. And therefore, it's incredibly important that the church recognize what they have in this officer who fulfills this role in a local church. I, tell my, I used to tell my congregation in Georgetown that I am God's gift to you. And they would smirk. But it's true. When Christ was raised up again, he led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to to men. And part of that is the role of pastor-teacher in the local church. It's truly heartbreaking for me sometimes to see how pastors are treated by their local churches. If, If a pastor is truly God's gift to your church, it's incredibly important to treat that man well, to love him well. I find it heartbreaking to see how so much disrespect and contempt is thrown at pastors. It breaks my heart to see how they, the demands that are placed on them and the expectations that they labor under, the criticism and the gossip that they deal with sometimes. Folks, 
when God gives you a pastor, this next man when he comes, recognize this, that he is God's gift to you. Will he be perfect? Absolutely not. No pastor is. Will he have all the gifts and potentials that you want him to have or you'd like to see in him? Clearly not. No pastor does. But remember this, he is God's gift to this church. He fulfills an office in your life. I think before I got here in December, you were, as a congregation, were struggling not having a pastor. When Daryl left, you felt a deep loss. Why? Because your pastor left, and then following that, other pastors left, and there was a sense of loss a very appropriate sense of loss because the man that God had called to shepherd, to love, to guide, to care for, to teach and preach, to do the ministry of the word in your life was gone. And that was difficult. That was hard. My prayer is that very shortly God is going to lead our elders to identify the next lead pastor of our church. And my encouragement to you is to recognize that he is God's gift to you. And I want you to love him the way that you have loved me. I, I can't begin to explain to you how blessed I have been by your reception of me and Cindy. The hedge team has just loved on us incredibly. I have been so warmly embraced by this congregation. Cindy and I have just felt so much love. I just I just want that to be the experience of the next guy who comes here. So do in his life what you have done in in our lives, and he will be blessed. He's going to come as a flawed human being as I have. He's going to come with insecurities and vulnerabilities as as I have. He's going to come with weaknesses and inadequacies as I have. But that's okay. He is a human, frail man. Love him, forgive him, be gentle with him, be forbearing with him because he is God's gift to you. And as you treat him well, as you affirm him, as you esteem him, as you bless him, as you love on him, he is going to respond and pour out his life in service of you and you will be blessed. You will be blessed. So the first thing I want to say this morning is this. God calls us to love that Man, love him well. Value the gift that God has given to you in a pastor. Secondly, use the gift of God. Why does God give churches, pastors and teachers? That's one office, pastor, teacher. Same, same office, two functions, to shepherd and to teach. Why does God do that? Well, the, the, the answer to that question is seen very clearly in, in, in verse 12. God has done it so that he might equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The reason that God gives this office to the church and puts officers in that office for periods of time is so that he might equip the saints for the works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The role of the pastor is to equip the saints to do the ministry. The role of the pastor is to enable, to equip, to train, to teach the saints to do the ministry. Now, I grew up in a, as the son of a Presbyterian minister, and my dad was the minister in the church. 
And as I've grown to look at this from from an adult perspective, I realize that that term minister was one of the greatest misnomers that the church has ever done. My dad's responsibility was not to minister. My dad's responsibility was to equip. He, he he, He should have been the equipper. My job here amongst you is not to do the ministry. My job is to equip you to do ministry. The reality is that the ministers are the congregation. The people who do ministry in the church are not the pastors or the teachers. The people who do ministry in the church are the people as they minister to one another on behalf of Christ. The problem is, I think, that we have so many unbiblical expectations of our pastor. We want him to be the CEO. We want him to be the most effective fundraiser on the planet. We want him to be the most effective organizer. We want him to be capable um, and entertaining at the parties. We want him to be an outgoing personality. We want him to be sort of friendly and affable and gracious. We have all these expectations of what a pastor should be. The reality is that a pastor should be a man of God who loves the word of God and teaches people God's word and equips them and shepherds them. That's the role of the pastor. The pastor's role is to shepherd people, to love on people, and to teach them the word of God. If he can't administrate very well, there's people in the church that can do that. If he's not a very good organizer, there's people in the church that can do that. If he's not capable financially, there's people in the church that can do that. If he's not strong in leadership, there's people in the church that can do that. The reality is that so many unbiblical expectations are heaped on pastors these days that we find so many pastors burning out. I had a good friend who pastored in the church a number of years ago, and one of the old men in his church went to a reunion of his Bible college class from probably back in the 60s. And he went out to this reunion, and he came back home, and he was talking to my friend, the pastor. And he says, my friend said, how was it? And he says, it was so discouraging. And my friend said, why was it so discouraging? He said, of all of my classmates who began in ministry back in the 60s, less than 10% of them ended up finishing as pastors. And why was that? Most times, they just simply burnt out. There is no pastor who can possibly assume all the mantles, all the responsibilities, all the expectations that a congregation places on him and and, and remain sane. You're going to burn out. A pastor is someone who is called to study the word, to preach and teach the word, and to love his people. And if you have a pastor who comes in here in a couple of months or six months or whenever that is, and he says, God has raised me up to study the word and to preach and teach the Bible and to love on you, that's all. Let him do that and bless him in that ministry and come alongside him in all his weaknesses, in all his frailties, in all his inadequacies and pour your life into him and around him and strengthen him And together, make this church what God has called it to be. You see, you're the ministers. He's not. And that's why it's critical that we also understand that passage when it says, 
In verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us, not only to understand that it is the pastor who has been given to the church to fill that office, but that you have been given to the church to serve the body. A pastor is given to the church to fill an office. You have been given gifts and given to the church to bless the body. Every single one of you who are listening to me this morning or watching, every single one of us sitting here in this room right now, if we are saved, we have been endowed with a spiritual potential given to us by the Holy Spirit, and it is absolutely imperative that we use it in the life of this church. And if you're not, there are people who are suffering. There is ministry that is not being done. There's potential that's not being realized because you are not using the gift that God has given to you. And so my encouragement to you is simply this. Don't heap onto the pastor responsibilities and roles and expectations that he shouldn't carry. Don't let him heap them on himself. Because the role of the saint is to do the work of ministry. Come alongside. Throw your life into this church. Use your potential in this congregation. Bolster us. Strengthen us. Give yourself to us. Use the potential that God has given you, the spiritual gift that God has given to you. Understand what that gift is, first of all, and then use it to bless and edify and build up this congregation. When a shepherd is given the opportunity, the time to study the word, to preach well, to love on his people, and those people respond by pouring their gifts, their potential, their life into the congregation, that's the balance that God wants for us, and that is what is going to cause a church to grow. Thirdly, together we've got to pursue the goal of God. Together we pursue the goal that God has given to us. In verses 13 and 14, I think what the apostle does is he gives us two contrasting pictures of a healthy, mature, godly, spirit-filled, world-changing church and an immature church. And so there is a goal that we need to pursue, verse 13, and then there is Satan's goal for us, verse 14. And I want to contrast these two and ask us, where do you think we're at? So here's God's goal, verse 13. What does it say? God's goal is that, so let me read from verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith, that's the first thing, unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, that's the second thing, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So a mature church is simply this, a mature church is a church that lives in unity, the unity of the faith. So as Nate preached last week, there's those seven things that we, that, that we agree upon. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Those, those, there is a unity that grows out of our faith, our, our shared collective faith in Jesus and what he has done. And then there was the knowledge of the Son of God. And that word knowledge really means doctrinal, theological truth. So unity plus truth, 
produce maturity. And when the church grows up, we grow up into the fullness of Christ. So we become, in some senses, the incarnation of Jesus. A unified church that is theologically correct, indwelt by the Spirit of God, reflects the character of God, reflects the life of God, it reflects the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that, was, that was Paul's prayer for us, and uh, Jesus' prayer for us in John 17. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is validated and substantiated and proven to the world by our unity, our theological unity, our doctrinal precision. That's what God has for us as a goal. That's what we should be striving for. That's the direction we should all be heading in. That's, the, that's what we should be pulling for together. Unity, theological accuracy, reflects the truth that Jesus is the living Son of God amongst us. So what's Satan's goal for us? Satan's goal is in verse 14. And Paul says, if we pursue goal number one, we won't fall into goal number, you know, the verse 14, Satan's goal. He says, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So here's Satan's plan, that we would be immature children, tossed by the waves, that we would have no unity, that we would drift around theologically with no foundation, being deceived, falling for Satan's schemes and the trickery of men. No unity, disunity, based on bad theology. That's that's Satan's goal for us. A fractured church based on bad theology, and he calls that immaturity. Now, I want to sort of give you an analogy of what he's talking about here. Think with me. You're out... You put 100 people on the deck of your boat, you put them in orange life jackets, and you go out 100 miles offshore, and you tell them all to jump overboard and try to stay together. The storm, it's a big storm. It's not a hurricane, but it's a pretty big storm. And they all dutifully jump overboard in their orange life jackets, and there they are bobbing on the ocean, and the waves are up and down, right? You pull your boat away and you kind of watch this, or you get in a helicopter because you get a helicopter on your boat, and you're able to go up in the sky. And what do you see? Well, you see this mass of orange life jackets down below you, but pretty soon, because of the waves and the wind and the storm, they begin to disperse. After about 10 or 15 minutes, all you can see is these orange life jackets all over there, a couple, three, four, five, six acres. An hour later, they're just everywhere. And that's what Paul is describing happens when we are not theologically grounded, when we are not theologically precise, when we're blown about by every wind of doctrine, by the deceitfulness of men, and by the scheming and the lying of Satan. You see, if, if, we're not, if, we're, if we're not theologically grounded, we can't have unity. That's the point. 
A mature, healthy church is when people are living in unity, and that unity is held together by theological precision, good doctrine. A church is scattered. People are disunified. When we listen to bad doctrine, sinful men, and Satan, who schemes and tries to deceive us. Human cunning. An immature church has no unity but doctrinal confusion. No unity but cunningly confusing plans of sinful men are embraced. No unity but falling prey to the craftiness and the lies and the schemes of Satan. And the consequence has to be no reflection of the person of Jesus, no reflection of the gospel to our world. So we have one of two choices. We can together strive to be a mature church by being unified and doctrinally precise, theologically precise, or we can be scattered, disunified, listening to all sorts of different voices, falling prey to the schemes and the lies of Satan, blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, everything we read on Facebook, everything we watch from the televangelists. So let me try to apply this to a situation that's facing evangelicalism today and dividing us significantly. Right now, people in churches all across Canada, all across the world, I would think, are taking sides in how we should respond to the government lockdowns. Some say that we should defy the government. Others say we should comply with the government. And both positions have biblical support. Some say that the government has no right to interfere with church worship. Others say that for a season and for the health and well-being of our society, we should suspend gatherings for a short period of time. But Satan is using this issue to polarize us, to create huge division amongst us. He is is using this issue to make us an Ephesians 4.14 church rather than an Ephesians 4.13 church. And the great catastrophe of it is that if we allow him, the reflection of Christ is not going to be seen in us. We are not going to grow up into the stature of Christ, into that maturity, the fullness of Christ. And Satan is polarizing us, and how is he doing it? I think the answer is this. He polarizes us, or he polarizes us in our immaturity when we take an issue that the Bible relegates to the area of personal conscience and elevate it to the level of absolute truth. When the the Bible takes an issue that should be in the area of personal consciousness, conscience before God, and we elevate it to the area of absolute truth. And if we do, we become entrenched in two different positions, and we look at one another as sinners, If you close the church down, the Bible says you should keep it open, you're a sinner. If you 
open the church and if you allow gatherings, the government says you shouldn't, you're a sinner. And the reality is that the truth is somewhere in the middle. There's a huge gray area here that churches and individuals are wrestling with. And when we allow Satan to make something an absolute, the Bible doesn't make an absolute, we have the potential of polarizing ourselves and dividing ourselves so unnecessarily. Yesterday I had a really good meeting with some of the people from our church and we talked about this from Romans 14 and I don't have time this morning to go into great detail about what we talked about but here's the gist of it. If we can agree that our response personally and as a church to the pandemic is in the area of conscience. It's not an absolute right or wrong. If we can agree, which I think reasonable people should, if we can agree then the passage of Scripture that most clearly speaks to this issue is Romans 14. Romans 14 is a passage of Scripture where Paul is writing to the Romans, and in the Roman church there were two groups of people. There was a Jewish group who were very committed to certain rules that they brought from their Jewish culture. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Well, those, those guys were, were not, well, who knows? doesn't matter. don't have time. But there was these rules, and there was all these rule keepers, and then there was these people who said, I don't care about the rules, I'm going to do my own thing. And the rule keepers, who were committed to these certain special holy days that had to be celebrated, not drinking wine, not eating meat sacrificed to idols, these rule keepers would look with judgment and condemnation on the rule breakers. And the rule breakers, who didn't have a problem eating meat sacrificed to idols or drinking wine or, or not going to celebrate some special high holy day on a particular day, those rule breakers would look with contempt and disdain upon the rule keepers. And you know, that's what's happening in our church, in our churches all across Canada. We have the rule keepers looking with judgment and and. And, and condemnation upon people they see as the rule breakers. And the rule breakers looking with, with contempt and derision upon those people who want to keep the rules. And the reality is, there isn't a right or wrong here. There isn't a right or wrong. So what Paul says in Romans 14, just let me read you a couple of quick passages from that, that, that passage of Scripture. In Romans 14, he says things like this. He says, um, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and stand he will because God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be firmly convinced in his own mind. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Verse 10. Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We're all going to be responsible to God for the choices we make. So then, he says, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. You see, the point I'm trying to get at here is this. When we make an absolute out of something that the Bible doesn't, we imperil the church. 
We imperil our unity. It's absolutely critical that we as leaders in the church give you freedom in your home and in your personal life to do what God calls you to do. To, to live out your conscience. To do what you think is best. And it's absolutely critical that when the elders are making decisions for our congregation, that you give them the freedom of conscience to do what they feel is best for our church, to lead us in a way that God leads them. And although you may not agree with them, you need to defer. You need to submit. That's why Hebrews tells us, submit to your elders. Follow your elders and obey them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who are going to give an account to God. And do this in such a way as to make their job pleasant, is what the passage says. So that they will know joy in it. Will the elders always agree about how you run your personal life? Maybe not. Will you always agree how the elders run our church? Perhaps not. But this is an issue of conscience. It's not an issue of right and wrong, sin and righteousness, black and white. And if we make it that, we're going to hurt our church. So my encouragement to you is this. Recognize that Satan is trying to divide us with bad doctrine. Deceitfully scheming and planning to destroy our church through disunity. Over fights that we don't need to have. Conflicts that aren't necessary. My heart for our congregation is this. That we would not let Satan make absolute what the Bible doesn't call absolute. That we would give each other the freedom to live in a way as their conscience dictates before God. That we wouldn't judge. That we wouldn't condemn. That we wouldn't look down upon with contempt or disdain those who have a different position than us. Believe me, believe me when I say this, that when we are asked to cross the line and the government tells us that we can't call sin, sin, or we're not allowed to meet because we're considered anti-gay or anti-progressive or anti-science, that we will defy the government in order to obey the word of God. But let's not take something that the scriptures don't clearly speak to and let Satan use it as a wedge to divide us. Let's not be children tossed by waves and thrown around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the, the cunning deceitful scheming of the evil one. Ephesians 6 is going to tell us, be aware of Satan's schemes. Stand against Satan's schemes. He's not creative. He is not original. Satan has never had an original thought in his life. He uses the same old tired tricks to trip the church up. And he's trying to do it now. Let's not let him. Let's make a choice to be an Ephesians 4.13 church living in unity and doctrinal precision based on the word of God. And let's grow up 
into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. So that when people look at us collectively, when they see us together, they can't help but see Jesus Christ in our midst. If that's our goal, if that's our heart, if that's what we pursue, we're going to grow up and be the church that God is calling us to be. So, fourthly and quickly, what's the fourth thing? Well, we speak the truth in love, verse 15. So how how do we avoid verse 14? And how do we live verse 13? How do we be a mature church? We speak the truth in love. That's what I have tried to do right now. Maybe I haven't been as articulate as I should. Maybe I haven't been as precise as I should. But I've tried to speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is not just saying hard things to people kindly. It is that. But that's not really what Paul is talking about. If you want to know what he's talking about when he talks about speaking the truth in love, go over to chapter chapter 5 and see what he says here. He says in verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks for everything to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking the truth in love is basically articulating God's truth to one another. It's basically sharing the gospel with each other. It's basically speaking the word into each other's lives. It's basically saying, let me encourage you with this psalm. Is basically standing in church and together singing truth to one another and to the Lord. It's allowing the word of God to dwell in us so richly and so fully that we become effervescent with the word. It just pours out of us. God's truth is on our lips. God's words of encouragement and edification and correction are in our hearts and they just pour out of us to one another. You see, a church that is truly unified is going to speak the truth to one another in love because the truth will be the foundation upon which our lives are fully built. It will be the foundation of our lives. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new foundational realities of our life are revealed in the pages of Scripture. And those truths need to be on our lips. So often we allow so many other things to become the focus of our interest, our passions, our heart's desire. What Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture is build your life in the Word of God and then speak to one another. Speak to one another. Encourage one another. The truth of God in love. So, for the church to grow up, to be all that God has called us to be, what do we need? Well, we need a pastor, someone who fills that office in our lives, somebody who is our shepherd, someone who loves on us, who cares for us as a shepherd should, who teaches us the word of God faithfully and consistently, who is doctrinally precise, who preaches the word of God into our hearts, 
And we are transformed slowly, progressively, but inexorably. We are changed by the ministry of that, the word through that man. Year after year after year. That's what the church needs. So love on that guy. Love him. Accept him with his weaknesses, but love him. Come alongside him, secondly, with all of your strengths. God has gifted each of us everything that we need as a church to accomplish everything that God has called us to do as a church is in this church. So pour your life, your gifts into this congregation and come around that guy when he comes and support him and bless him and love him and love this church. And thirdly, let's be unified. Let's be unified. Unity of the faith and the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Son of God. Let's make that our passion so that we grow up into the fullness of Christ, so that Christ is seen in us. And lastly, let's minister to one another through the word. Let's speak God's word in each other's lives. Speak the truth in love. Let me pray with you. And the worship team will come and lead us. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, this has perhaps been for some a challenging message and maybe a message that has caused a little bit of upset in their hearts. Father, if, if, there, if I have said something that has wounded or unintentionally hurt someone, I pray, Father, that you'd forgive me for that. But Father, where the truth has been spoken, I pray that it would sink deeply into our hearts and would transform and change us so that we might be the church that you have called us to be. So that, Lord, when every part is working properly, every part is equipped and working properly, we grow up to be the congregation of people that you want us to be. So let us be that. Let us love our pastor. Let us come alongside him with our gifts and the potential that we have given. Let us give ourselves to this congregation, Lord, to strengthen it and to bless it. For those who can give, let them give. Those who can lead, let them lead, Lord. Those who can lead us in worship, let them do that. Those who can serve, those who have the gift of helps, Lord. Whatever that is, let, that, let us serve one another. Let us serve together. Father, I pray that you would not let us be divided, not let us be an immature church, children tossed here and there by every the waves and the wind and, and the waves of doctrine. But Father, let us be strong in the truth of God and in the unity of the faith. And then, Father, put your word on our lips. Let us minister to one another from the scriptures. Fill our hearts with the word of God so that it just pours out of us. Let it dwell within us richly, Father, I pray, so that we can admonish and encourage and reprove one another, that we can bless and edify and build one another up, that we'll have words ready that are like seasoned salt, that'll just be the right word for the moment. Lord, let us be the kind of church that is really unified for your glory. Let us have an impact in this community, I pray. Lord, we want this not because we, we want it for our self-aggrandizement, but we want it for the glory of Jesus, for the salvation of lost people. Satan loves to destroy the church. Don't let him, Father. Protect us. Guard us. Protect our unity. Humble us. Or do everything that's necessary in our lives that we might be the church that reflects the fullness of Christ to our world, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.